the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. Uh, just by way of survey, how many of you have ever heard a message from the book of Habakkuk? Let me, let me see your hand. A few. Okay, right on. We've got some Habakkuk pros here this morning. Uh, sometimes when we come to the Bible, we, we tend to stay, as New Testament believers, we tend to stay in the New Testament. Or if we go to the Old Testament, we go to the stories of Moses and coming out of Egypt and those stories that seem to be rather well known if we've been around the Bible at all. But sometimes we, we don't look at the minor prophets. Now they're not minor in importance, but what we're gonna do is we're going to take the next six weeks and we're going to walk through the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. And some people say, I've never even heard of Habakkuk. Moreover, I don't even know how to spell Habakkuk. So, so why, why would we do, why would we take six weeks and go through an Old Testament book called Habakkuk? Number one, because it's in the Bible. Right? Right? And so, so all of the Bible is God's Word, not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, what we'll see is there's many of the key, uh, teachings in the New Testament that pivot off of chapter two in the book of Habakkuk. So, we want to know right out of the gate, why would we do this? Because it's in the Bible, right? Secondly, the reason why we would go through the book of Habakkuk is because a lot of times we don't go through the minor prophets. A lot of us have never even gone through a series. Also, the book of Habakkuk is absolutely bursting at the seams with good stuff for today's present day world, the problems and all. So what we want to do starting out is we want to understand um, why we would study the book. And then, then secondly, we want to say, who actually was Habakkuk? Well, all that we really know is that he was a prophet who lived in a time to where Israel was going through major economic, social issues, even military issues. And not only that, we have to ask the question, when we study our Bibles, if you're new to studying the Bible or whether you've been around church for a long time, we ask the question, what was going on during that time? For example, um, if your dad says, when I was in college, I had a Fu Manchu. You say, dad, you probably were in college in the 70s. Can I get a witness? Right. You say, if I I rocked bell bottoms before they came back, like first time, you say it was probably 60s. Or if you say I had I had I had the hair band hair and I wasn't even in a band, you say 80s, thank you. Right. And so so we have things that if we understand the time in which they happened, it helps us understand more why the prophet wrote what he wrote. So here is the main thrust of the book of Habakkuk. It is not an address to the people of Israel, the people of Judah. It's actually what some of us have experienced and it's looking at the world as it is and then looking at God's word, seeing who God says he is and asking the question, God, how do these things add up? Like if you are who you say you are, then why do we see all of what we see in the world? In other words, it's a book to where the prophet is so bothered by evil and suffering in the world that he doesn't talk to other people. He goes straight to God. And some people tell us it's wrong to question God. Let let me just give give you something to think about. If you never have questions, 
If there's never anything that goes on up here, then it may be that we're not engaged with God's word at all, right? Because we're in, when we're interested in something and when we're invested in something, we have questions about it. Not questioning if God exists necessarily, but just saying, Lord, help me know how all these things actually fit together. So the theme is trying to understand why God allows evil to go unpunished when it seems like God is inactive. And so when did he live? He lived in a time to where the ancient kingdom of Assyria, this is getting to some of the history, Assyria had been dominating the Near East for several hundred years. In fact, about a hundred years prior to this, if you can imagine a map of Israel, but ten northern tribes were wiped out and deported by the Assyrians. The Assyrians were bad, bad, bad guys. Remember the story of Jonah? Jonah was sent to Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And Jonah didn't want to go because he didn't want him to repent. He wanted God to kill them all. He said, God, you kill them all, you sort them out. And his only message was not God is a God of graciousness. Jonah's only message was 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. In other words, start your time clocks, 40 days, you're all going to be dead. That's the sermon. Imagine that. Right? We get up on Sunday morning, band finishes playing, come up, 40 days, you know good rotten scumbags are going to hell. Let's pray. And then you leave and you're like, what just happened? You know, did I not forward that thing on, on Facebook, you know, that said you have to forward? By the way, don't let anybody ever coerce you, right? Whether it's email or Facebook or face-to-face. So here's the thing. You've got the Assyrian Empire. And man, this is actually what happened. When you read the book of Jonah, they actually, the Assyrians would skin people alive. I mean, they were, they were horrible, horrible terrorists slash professional soldiers. And then there's this place that we know as modern day Iraq. Very peaceful place, right? Guess what was happening then? There was this group of people called the Chaldeans. And they were a tribe that was living in southern Iraq. And they began to grow in strength so that they begin to fight the Assyrians. And the Assyrian Empire began to go down. And the Chaldeans or the Babylonians or the Iraqis began to go up in power. Well, what happened? Israel was right there in the middle. Who is to the southern, who's the southern neighbor of Israel? Far south, Egypt. Egypt controlled that area. So in 605 BC, this is for those of you, the history, military history people, there was the Battle of Karshemish. And this was a battle in which you had the Assyrians that were wiped out by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians wiped out basically the entire army of the Egyptians. So this was like ancient Armageddon, unless guess who was left standing? New kid on the block, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And guess who was left there who was allied with Assyria with no defense? The nation of Judah. hundred years before, all their brothers and their sisters and their family up north, they were gone. Kingdom was obliterated. And here you have this small nation of Judah. And you've got Simeon there. They're the remnant of the remnant. The kingdom has shrunk to almost nothing. And you say, well, at least we paid the Assyrians big money. We paid them thug protection money. But the Assyrians are now gone. And now the Babylonians are rising. And those guys don't care about any law. They just want blood. 
And so it was a major time of shifting. And here you see Habakkuk not even complaining about all that. You know what he sees? He sees Israeli on Israeli violence. He sees within his own culture and within his own family people that are related to one another by blood and by culture who are ripping each other apart. Let's just stop for just one moment. I think the United States of America, probably our greatest enemy is ourselves. Some of us in our families and our relationships, our marriages, we can point to people who are not what they should be. But let's just be honest. Like one guy said, if we could kick the person who was responsible for most of our problems, we wouldn't be able to sit down for six weeks. And so he doesn't turn his eyes to them. He says, why is it with all of this bloodshed and these tens of thousands of soldiers being slaughtered and Lord, just a few years before, we thought it was going to get better. Because if you had lived in that time, you would have known the name Manasseh. And Manasseh was the most evil king Israel had ever seen. Check this out. If you read the Old Testament, all those things that God said don't do, I just can be real, like don't sleep with your mother-in-law. <laughs> Thank you, Tommy. I don't even know how to recover from that. We'll just move on. You've got all of these things in the Old Testament where God says don't do. And you're like, Who's he talking to? Like if you had, if you have to give a list of rules and you're like, don't sleep with your mother-in-law. You're like, why did you have to say that? Right? Old Testament Canaanite culture was this, this is, it was so sick and so twisted. God literally, and this is in the Bible. If you're offended, it's in here. He literally had to say, don't sleep, don't commit incest and don't sleep with animals. Your cattle, your dogs, they're not for that purpose. So that gives us a small insight into how corrupt the Canaanite culture actually was. Here's where it gets crazy. The Bible tells us that Manasseh did more evil than the Canaanites before him. Even the prophet Isaiah, man, 66 chapters in the Old Testament of incredible, beautiful truth. Guess who Jewish traditions say was the one, as the book of Hebrews says, who saw, he, they saw they saw the prophet Isaiah in two. You're like, man, I come to church and I'm hearing some jacked up stuff. Like, what kind of church is this? The Bible, by the way, you cannot shock the Bible. Anything on MTV, anything on the internet, the Bible's already called it. I'm glad that God loves us enough to be real. And even if some of you have had a very dark past sexually, you can look at the book of Judges and say, man, if God could give mercy to some of those people, he'd give mercy to me. Amen. You have it all laid out. So you've got this King Manasseh who reigned for 55 years and it said he filled Jerusalem from one end to the other with innocent blood. Isaiah was killed. Horrible. And then it says his son Ammon did even more. I mean, the biblical writer doesn't even go into detail. It's like if you can imagine the Canaanites, got that picture? Then imagine Manasseh more so. And I'm not even going to say what Ammon did. He just did more. And then you've got that great story of King Josiah. Came to the throne when he was eight years old. They had a temporary revival. 
And he actually fell in battle defending his country. What a great king. He was the last of the great kings in Israel. He tried to stop the decay of the nation. But it was almost like, and by the way, what an awesome day. It's like going to be 64 degrees in Virginia, the frozen blizzard land. In the middle of, of February, praise the Lord. Has some people getting a little crazy in here, right? You know, and so you've got that. But, but, but imagine if you went back to see um, Josiah, that it was a temporary revival. Kind of like when some of us cut, you cut the grass, let's say, in the middle of August. I mean, you're, you're, you are full. You've got sweat. You, you're absolutely nasty. Then you've got somewhere nice to go. And you walk in and you are covered with stuff. I mean, you even you even do that, like take your fingernail across your forehead and you kind of get that black gunk and you can flick it. And it'll stick. It's awesome. Don't judge me. And you, you're just nasty. You stink. You reek. I mean, even, even you even hit a wasp nest and the wasps are like, I'm not going into that. And then you come inside and, and your wife says, you know, we, we, we got to go. So you need to get Get cleaned up and, and, and let's go. Do you ever notice women have a great civilizing effect on most men? Some of you guys are like, yeah, I don't get sick as much anymore, right? And then you say, you know what? I bought a brand new suit last week. And your wife's, why don't you go take a shower? And you go put on the $1,000, $500 suit and you put it on, you put on the tie and you still reek. And you go and it's almost like the outside is not a representation of your cleanliness because you never actually got clean. That's the situation in the time of Josiah to where there were outward things that changed in the nation. They destroyed many of the idols. They built the temple back up. They began to go to church again. But the people's hearts had not been changed. And just a few years after that, Battle of Karshemish, Ancient Armageddon, Babylonians wipe out the Assyrians, Babylonians wipe out the Egyptians, and the only ones standing are the scholar, warrior, bloodthirsty nation called the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. But that's not what actually bothered Habakkuk. Notice in verse 1, he says, depending on your translation, the oracle or the burden or the vision, you can translate that Hebrew term either way, that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. What we're going to see walking through this passage is that God is still at work even when it seems that he doesn't even hear. Did y'all catch that? For us as followers of the Lord God, Jesus Christ, we have to have as the bedrock and the foundation of our walk with Jesus to remember that God is not just watching, but God is active at work even when it seems He doesn't even hear our prayers. So what are some of the things that Habakkuk saw? What are these symptoms of a corrupt culture? And let's just say this. Why are some of the reasons that we cry out to God? Notice what he saw. He saw that there was violence and no rescue. 
In fact, in the book of Genesis, chapter 6, verse 12, the Bible says that God sent the flood because the earth was filled with violence. Ever since Cain committed the first murder, people have become pretty good at it in all cultures and at all times. You can go to the most high-tech people today. You can go to low-tech. You can look at ancient history. But one thing that all cultures have had as a problem that that has plagued us, the reasons why we have to build maximum security prisons or the reason why some places uh, they say if you commit this offense, then you die. Why? Because we have the sin of violence. I just want to say a word about this. You realize how serious murder actually is. Like Clint Eastwood in the movie Unforgiven when he played the character William Money, a killer. He says, when you kill a man, you take away all he's got and all he's ever going to have. In the Bible, it tells us that we've all been made in the image of God. So really unprovoked violence. And we're not talking about a just war. We're not talking about legitimate self-defense. We're talking about violence to where we use people to get something. It's an offense. It's an attack upon the very nature of God. And in his culture he says. Don't we have enough problems externally? But they had people feeding on one another. Terrible violence. Not only that he says. He says there. Why do you make me see iniquity? He's like Lord if you're sovereign. Why do I have to see all this stuff? He's saying God there's no. It seems like there's no escape. From the same old problems. If you've talked to people who've been in combat, police officers, first responders, medical people, school teachers, they'll say, they'll say, you know, I have seen things, instances of suffering to where it's like, Lord, why did you allow me to see this? Why did these things happen? I don't see how it fits together. And here he is, he says, Lord, they may not worship you. Most of Judah, they may be apostate. They may not even care. But I do. And I'm trying to see how it fits all together. And then he says all of these things happen. And guess what happens? Verse 4, the law is paralyzed. By the way, we know this from history. Every time a culture or a nation collapses, there's always moral decay before that, isn't there? Always. Rome would have never fallen if there had not been moral decay from within. If the U.S. falls, whatever that may be, it will be because of moral decay within. Justice is is so twisted that it becomes strangled. He's saying, okay, not only are there bad guys in culture, but it's actually gotten to the point that the law can't even do what the law was intended to do. We've got modern... We can have corrupt judges. We can have corrupt jurors. We can have corrupt legal system. And he's saying this doesn't seem like there's anything that we can do. And it's almost like if you've ever seen little kids that haven't been taught yet to let their parent finish the conversation before they interrupt. You see that little kid that's just like, Dad, Mom, pulling on the leg of the pants. He seems like that because he's saying it's not, not getting any response. So God's answer, notice how... God begins to answer there in verse number 5. God answers his cry. Verse 5, God says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astonished. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. 
So God's saying, look, I'm already at work even though it seems like I'm standing idly by. So here, you're Habakkuk. You see this military thing, the bodies, you see the fallout. And then you look around at your culture and it's eating itself alive. And then God says, I got an answer for you. You're like, awesome. Like God actually is listening to me. And in verse number five, he says, there's something happening that you wouldn't even believe. Verse number six, he says, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. So it's kind of like, okay, time out. Because what is God saying? He said, I'm going to raise up a nation worse than you to bring judgment and punishment. Now, imagine you were Habakkuk. And you said, God, I thought I was asking you for an answer to the problem, not a bigger problem that comes on. But this is something for us to be to take note of, that God often uses unusual instruments, unusual means to bring about justice. And in this case, God uses the unjust to punish the unjust. And notice this little bio here he gives of the Chaldeans. He says that they're basically, they're driven. In verse 7 he says they're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. He says they're lawless in verse 7. Meaning there is no law that they respect. Meaning they don't, Geneva Convention, they don't hold to it. They're skilled at violence, verses 8 and 9. He talks about how their horses are swifter than leopards in verse 9. They all come for violence and their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. And not only that, are they skilled at violence? Are they driven? He says they're coming. They're not even intimidated by kings in verse 10. They're not intimidated by rulers. They laugh at fortresses. They say, you can build walls as high as the sky goes. We will build siege works and bring you down. In verse 11, and they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Some of us have probably been in the weight room before where you see a guy and his might is his God. Looking at himself in the mirror. One guy I talked to one time, he was just, you know, doing the thing, pulling up the sleeves, checking himself out. Then there's a girl who walked by and he's like, yeah, I'm just really working on my shoulders. It's going great. I'm loving it. And she just kept walking. It's one of those awkward moments you see at a distance. But this is far more. He's saying they're not just the guys in the weight room looking at how buff they are. They literally worship their own strength. They say, we don't care about gods. We don't care about the one true God. We don't care about anything, but we're coming against your city. We will raise it to the ground and we answer to no one. And that's the answer that God gave you. Imagine if you were in Habakkuk's place. You're like, God, I thought I'm asking you for an answer to the problems that are within our culture. You say, well, how can this, this is his second response there in verses 12 through 16. He said, God, how can you use, it's almost like, how can you use corrupt people? Like if you're a perfect God, if you're holy, notice there in verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my holy one? And he says, we shall not die almost like a, to remind himself. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. Notice verse 13. And you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors? He's saying, God, why is it that you seem to use people that are worse 
than the Judeans, worse than the Israelites. Why is this happening? And in verse 17, he summarizes it and he says, Is he then talking about the Babylonians, the killers, to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? This would be a good time to take a timeout break and talk to us as Americans. We have veterans in our church, and for that, we're grateful. Amen, church? Amen. But most of us, unless we have been overseas in combat, most of us, regardless of what you think about the terrorism issue, most of us have not been threatened by armies massing on our borders. We've got the Canadians on our northern border, and then we have the Mexicans on our southern border. Both are allies. Neither pose a military threat. And by the way, can you imagine Canadians invading? Hi, how are you? I mean, it would just, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. Remember last year when one of my flights got held up and everybody, you know, mad on cell phones and there was a lady who was from Canada. She's like, oh, I'm from Canada. It's going to be okay. I was like, leave it to the Canadians to just calm down the irate Americans. So this is something that's very, very difficult for us to understand that there was the possibility, almost the certainty, if God had not stopped it in that time. Now imagine this. There were no Marines. There was no Army. There was no Air Force. There were no drones. There were no Navy SEALs. There was nothing but just a few remnants in Judah in the city of Jerusalem. And you had no more allies. Babylonians had wiped out the Assyrians. The Assyrians were bad. You could at least pay them and they leave you alone. But now they're gone. Like wiped out. And where do you go? Can you imagine how crazy of a feeling that would be? To where you literally say, God, nobody else can stop them. There is no one in the ancient Near East who can even lift a finger against the Babylonians. They're going to they're gonna trounce over everybody. They're going to con- continue to kill and to rape and to burn. In fact, uh, there's one historical source that I read, and this is amazing. You remember back when David was killing lions and bears, and you're like, those aren't there during this time. Like, if you go over there, there's no longer there. That a large part of the animal population declining began with the Babylonian invasions. Because they would chop down all the trees, they would burn everything. And they said, could you imagine being on the walls of Jerusalem and looking out when Nebuchadnezzar and his army, the largest, most powerful force on the earth at that time, as far as you could see, as far as you could see, it was like scorched earth. When you get on a high point in Rocky Mount, it's awesome. It's beautiful, man, no matter what time of the year. And can you imagine all of the trees gone, all of that wood put together for siege engines, and all the animals scattered, the people, the few survivors gathering in Jerusalem. And this happened not too long after Habakkuk wrote these things. And you had no more allies. And you know what God said? Here's my answer. I'm going to bring the killers And I'm going to unleash them on my people who have been unfaithful time and time again. And what happened is that Nebuchadnezzar in 586, 587 B.C. came against Jerusalem. And they killed the army. 
They destroyed, they pulled, they pulled down the walls, guys. This, as far as history goes, it's amazing. I mean, they didn't have Kubotas and they didn't have tractors and tanks. They pulled the walls down so that anybody who wanted to make Jerusalem a fortress after that time, they would have not been able to have any defense. It was a way to totally defang the, the remaining survivors of the great nation of Israel. And you say, well, that doesn't seem to be much of a promise at all. And you say, Jeff, sometimes when I look at the world scene, I'm angry at what I see. And let me just make a comment here that if you watch what's going on around the world, and if we see the problems in our culture, we're not talking about problems. I mean, a couple months ago, I went to a great establishment, Quiznos. All right. And I'm going to get Greek chicken flatbread. Come on, y'all. You hadn't lived if unless you had Greek chicken flatbread. And they said, I'm sorry, sir, we no longer have it. I'm packing my bags. I'm like, how can, how can Quiznos not have that? Then Lee sent me a text this past week. We went to, uh, to Chick-fil-A this past summer. I remember we were driving back to Rocky Mountain. I had my sweet tea. Come on. And I put it down in the cup holder. Well, Lee had a little little pin that you put on your shirt. And he had that pin. And I didn't see it. And I put it down on the pin. So that when, when, I, when I got my drink up to drink it, it started like a fire hydrant. All inside Lee's car. And I'm going, wow, wow. And so we, we, we opened the door. And I've got the thing pouring it out. Like, no. On the way back to Rocky Mountain. And I ate my Chick-fil-A with no sweet tea. <laughs> I've been there. They gave me a Diet Coke instead, didn't see? Those for us, let's just be real. We get upset at stuff like that. You go through McDonald's, you go through Wendy's, and they get your order wrong. Oh, oh. Turn around, turn around. And we get worked up about that stuff. We get worked up about people getting in front of us, going 53 in a 55. Some of you are like, I've got to take my blood pressure now. <laughs> but this is different. Can we all agree on that? Amen. And let's just say the experience of most peoples in most nations throughout all of history have been very, very different than what we have as Americans. And that's why he says, God, will they continue to empty their nets of captives and kills forever? Not talking about being bothered. Not talking about being bothered by not getting an order right. But we're talking about things that are serious. If that does not bother you, if what ISIS is doing in Iraq doesn't doesn't bother you, if child molestation here, if you're just like, well, that's just something that's going to happen, it means that you're possibly as jacked up as those people because your moral compass no longer recognizes the difference between good and evil. You say, now, Jeff, I thought I'm a Christian. And I'm not supposed to, I'm not supposed to get angry at anything. It's not what the scripture says. It says, be angry and do not sin. Let me give you a text from Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. This is speaking of in heaven, those who had been killed for the name of Christ, martyrs. The people had said, recant Jesus and you'll live. And they said, no. And they were killed. In verse 10, it says, they cried out, this is in heaven. With a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge 
and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Justice and and vengeance have a place in the Bible, but they are God's. But it still means that seeing moral evil in the world should bother us. If it doesn't, then our moral compass is not working correctly. Even in Psalm chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, the psalmist says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Have you ever felt that way? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? And how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? If you're in the place in your life to where things are happening, you say, Lord, I'm not doubting your existence. I'm not doubting the resurrection. But I'm just having difficulty making sense of what we see. We have to remember and understand as followers of Christ that God is always at work even when it seems that he doesn't hear. And when the Babylonians destroyed the temple, burned it to the ground, and the Ark of the Covenant, remember those right Indiana Jones movies? It was the destruction of Jerusalem that the Babylonians did that that's when the Ark disappeared. If it was burned or destroyed or whether it was hidden under the Temple Mount, nobody really knows except for Harrison Ford. But do you know what God did through all that? Can you imagine those people? God, this is your temple. Like you told us to build it and we built it. And now you're letting the, the, the Babylonians destroy it? How does this make sense? When we look from God's perspective at history, the Israelites up until the time of the Babylonian exile, they couldn't shake, man, they couldn't shake idolatry. It's like they'd have prophets, they'd have good kings, and they'd shake it for a little while, but then they'd be doing the same thing. They'd sacrifice their kids to idols, to somehow they thought that it would cause the storm gods to send better rains. And by the way, abortion is the same thing. Almost, almost all abortions are done for economic reasons. Almost all. And we as Christians at Rocky Mount Baptist Church should say that we love children and we hate abortion. H-A-T-E, but listen, if you have committed that sin, we love you. And we want this to be a place of restoration and hope and grace and forgiveness. But you know what? All of this seemingly pointless violence, you know what it did? It forever cured the Jews of idolatry. So a few hundred years later when Jesus came, boy, they had monotheism down, buddy. He says there is one God. God taught us that lesson. And not only that, you know what God did through this Babylonian exile, destruction of their nation? That was where the synagogue began to to be created. That was almost like local churches. Like we've got a church here in Rocky Mount. And there's churches all over. In the Babylonian time, the Jews were spread out on the Babylonian empire. And they said, well, the temple's destroyed and we can't even get to the temple. So let's just build houses of worship. Well, guess what happened when Jesus came? When Jesus came, most of the early believers were Jews who were meeting in, this is cool, meeting in synagogues. And when those Jews were converted, there was already a community, even though it was far removed from Jerusalem. And what God did through this as well is he gave us the book of Ezra. So for us to understand that from God's perspective, why does God allow these things to continue to go on? We have to understand that God's character and God's works mean that he has always been at work, even when it seems that he doesn't hear. And you notes you've got this statement. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, quote, If God were unkind enough to answer some of our prayers at once, and in our ways we should be very impoverished Christians. Wow. If God were unkind enough to answer our some of our prayers at once, and in our way we should be very impoverished Christians. Meaning that sometimes the answers that we want in the time that we want are not God's best for His plan or for us. Say, well, Jeff, how should we respond when we see problems in the world? We're going to camp out here next week, but chapter 2 and verse 4, it says in the last clause, but the righteous or the just shall live by faith. comes down to that. Faith in the character of God, faith in the past actions of God, You remember that old song? We sang this a couple of weeks ago. A mighty fortress is our God. There's one of those verses that say, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, Satan, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, and one little word shall fell him. As followers of Christ, we don't need to fear the future. We don't need to fear what's going to happen because we are held in the hand of God. And God is in control of history. And God is at work at large and in our own lives, even when it seems that he doesn't even hear. He's still at work.